So, Rafer, I have a question for you. Yes, Kristen? Who do you like better, good guys or bad guys? Well, I always like the bad guy better. I feel like the villain is always more fun. A movie is only as good as its villain. But how do you know if someone's really a villain? Because aren't we all just a little bit more nuanced than that? Isn't there good and bad in everyone, Rafer? Yes, that's true. You're right. I, I mean, come on. Is, is anyone really 100% bad? Let's say, for example, you're an inspiring, amazing teacher, and you get students to follow you around and to rally behind you. But maybe you're also a raging alcoholic <laughs> yeah. who has a tendency yes. to break furniture. Or perhaps you are one of the most terrifying villains in Disney animated history, and yet you have a backstory that might earn you some sympathy. I see where you're going. Yeah. Or maybe... You run with this gun-slinging, violent gang of cowboys, but maybe you're not so bad yourself. Maybe you can offer some guidance and some help to a sheep farmer. Ah, yes. Okay. So we're talking about <laughs> words and pictures with Clive Owen as that English teacher, the alcoholic English teacher we were just talking about. And we'll have an interview with him in this ah, podcast. so handsome. <laughs> he, was, he was, I have to say, very handsome. Yeah. Um, and we're also going to be talking about Maleficent, the new Disney movie based on the, uh, the evil queen from Sleeping Beauty. And we'll talk about Seth MacFarlane's latest Western comedy, A Million Ways to Die in the West. But first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture producer for The Takeaway. And I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday. And this is Movie Date. We can be villains just for one day. We can be villains on a movie date. All right, well... Tell me about Maleficent first. Because you skipped the screening, dude. Look, I had a lot of stuff going on. I won't bore the <laughs> listeners with what. A lot of lot of problems happening in my life. And oh. I could not make it to Maleficent, much as I wanted to. Now, here's the thing about Maleficent. Huge, huge early initial advertising push on this. Lots of media ink, mm-hmm. lots of expectations. Um, you know, Disney was releasing the you know, first look images at Angelina Jolie as Maleficent. And this was supposed to be, I think, a real event movie for the summer. And then things kind of fizzled out a little bit on the publicity campaign. And the film only screened once officially in terms of an official all critics invited screening. Not until the Wednesday before the Friday release, and that is never bad a good sign. sign. Very, very, sign. very odd for a movie like this because this was supposed to be a huge deal. So that raised a bit of a red flag for me. Tell us about this movie, and what did you think? Well, it's kind of a retelling of the Sleeping Beauty story through the eyes of Maleficent, the evil queen, who uh, puts that curse on Sleeping Beauty that she has to be asleep forever until somebody kisses her, the kiss of true love. Um, But we find out there's more to the whole story, which is kind of like Wicked on Broadway, uh, that whole thing where you have the bad guy who might be a good guy or might be a bad guy. But let me play a clip. I know you're there. Don't be afraid. (laughs) I am not afraid. Then come out. Then you'll be afraid. Now that's Jolie. That's the Jolie. And I have to say, the Jolie looks great as Maleficent. I've seen the pictures, as I said. Yeah, she looks terrific. And she, to me, she does a great job playing the role. A little bit campy, a little bit evil, but beautiful at the same time. And a little bit dangerous, but sexy, you know? Sure. But 
my big problem with the movie is the tone just seems to be off from one scene to the next. Sometimes it seems like a sci-fi kung fu movie, and sometimes it seems like an overly cutesy children's cartoon targeted at three-year-olds. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it seems like you're watching The Hobbit, and sometimes it feels like a romance. There's just so many different tones, and I wish they would have just settled on a tone because I think that the story is pretty good, actually. So are, are we supposed to have some kind of sympathy then for Maleficent? Does she in some ways become the hero of this story? She is both because maybe mm. maybe what caused her to be evil in the first place was somebody doing something pretty bad to her and then she did something bad back and maybe regrets it and needs to, you know, save things after that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. It's that kind of story. That I don't want to give story. away the whole plot though because I'll just ruin it all. So unfortunately, not a great date. I, I wanted this to be a much better date than it was. So that's I'm, too bad. Mal- I mean, the, the 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 evil queen in Sleeping Beauty is is widely regarded as one of the most one of Disney's scariest yeah. villains. Yeah, I mean, it's not a horrible date either. I'd say it's like down the middle. Hmm. It's down the middle, and there are many, many, many worse children's movies. If you're being dragged to a children's movie this year, this isn't the worst thing, but it's not the best either. Okay, well, that's too bad. So not a ringing endorsement from no, me. not at all. Shall shall we move on? Shall we move on to our next hero slash villain? Yes, let's uh, let's talk to Clive Owen. Oh, uh, so handsome! I know star... I already said that. <laughs> you <laughs> did say that. It's all right. So it's, worth, it's worth repeating. <laughs> I have to say, you know, I I I always thought Clive Owen was a good looking guy, the way movie stars are, and I knew that women went crazy for him all the time. I never really understood quite why. Seeing him in person, I kind of. I kind of got it, I have to say. <laughs> I, re- I have to admit that. Anyway, we spoke to Clive Owen, uh, the star of Words and Pictures. We'll play that interview for you in just a moment. So we are so thrilled to have with us today Clive Owen in studio. Clive oh. Owen, thanks for being here. No, pleasure. So uh, tell us the story of this movie and uh, what role you play in it. It's a story. I play a teacher who um, is an English teacher in a college. He was a published author, a published writer, and uh, he was a bit of a star teacher, but he's, he's got a bit jaded and a bit tired. And Then Juliette Binoche's character enters into the college, and she's an art teacher, and she basically says to the kids, forget about language, art is everything. And that kind of reawakens and reignites me and annoys me and galvanizes me into making a school-wide debate on whether art is more important than language. And at the same time, we're kind of falling for each other. And what drew you to the script? It was really, really beautifully written. It was um, it was as f- sort of fully formed and crafted as a play, really. In broad terms, it is a romantic comedy, but it was, it's, it was very beautifully written, very deft, very witty, and also very poignant and sad and emotional at times as well. Both the characters are sort of dealing with issues, and uh, I, I, I was just really taken with the writing. So, you, you know, you've done a pretty wide range of work, action films, thrillers, uh, Pinter, Shakespeare, uh, but this is really your first romantic comedy, isn't it? Yeah, probably is, yeah. Why, uh, why, why so long to take that dive? Um, because... You know, I, I think uh, often in romantic comedies, what I don't like about some of them is that often things are sort of constructed and, and played out for effect and they're not based in reality. And I think the thing that was so good about this script is it was very sort of buoyant and witty and smart, but it played very real as well. And uh, and 
you know that's what attracted me to it you know the the language is great and it's sort of rhythmically brilliant but uh it, it's also based in a reality and there's actually reality in the movie itself and how it's made because Juliette Binoche, she actually makes all of her own art in the yeah. movie, which is incredible. Her yeah. art is beautiful. It is beautiful. And I think Fred knew that she, you know, she painted, but he didn't know to what extent. And when uh, he discovered, you know, they obviously said, we'd love to use your, your work. And not only that, but she also, because she's sort of dealing with a, um, a disability in the film, she's sort of crippled with arthritis, she had to develop a new way of painting kind of during the movie and the paintings you see at the end were kind of made during the, the shooting of the film. Oh, wow. So there's that giant paintbrush that's about the same size as I am. Yeah. And she just came up with that during the... Yeah, she, she, she knows an artist that uses that and, uh, and, and thought that that would play great for the film. Did you know that it was going to be her real art when you were um, brought Bef- onto the film? Yes, because then, you know, for, as soon as Fred discovered, he called me and said, you're never going to believe this, but Julia is a really serious painter and she's got an awful lot of work that we can use. Did that make you feel like you had to up your game and write some of your own <laughs> yeah, exactly, lines in the movie? Exactly, yeah. No, it was great. I mean, I, I, I was a huge, and I am a huge fan of hers, and was thrilled when she um, she said yes to do the film. Uh, we should tell listeners you're talking about Fred Shapizzi, the director, yeah. right? Uh, he did um, Roxanne with yeah. Steve Martin and uh, IQ with Walter Matthau. He goes back a ways, Fred yeah, Shapizzi. Yeah, he does, did, yeah. Did he, did he come with this film initially? Uh, was this his yeah, project? It was. it took a while to come together. He came to – I'd known him a bit socially and he came to me with it and I, I was really taken with it. But it took probably three years to come together. And he was one of those that um, I just stuck with because every time I went back to it and read it, I, I, I knew how good it was and I thought it was a great part and finally it all came together. All right, so a, a music question for you. The, uh, the David Bowie song that plays during the scene where you are uh, smashing up your house with yep. a, tenic, a tennis racket, that's, that was your choice, that Bowie song, The Stars Are Out Tonight. That's, oh, uh, I love that song and I love David Bowie. You know, what happened there is there's a scene where I'm getting really frustrated. Things aren't going well, both with Juliet's character and with my writing. And I'm sort of outside in the yard hitting a tennis ball against the wall and it gradually moves inside. And I kind of trash my place in a sort of, you know, drunken sort of bout of frustration. And uh, I said to Fred, I really need some music because he, he, he decided the best way to shoot it is drop the cameras back and let's just, you do it and we'll catch it and we'll put it together later. But just give me freedom to just do what I wanted in the room. And I said, well, let, let me put some music on. It'll help sort of get me through it. And I'd been listening a lot to that track and the album. So I put that on. Fortunately, as often happens in movies, directors fall in love with the temporary music. <laughs> he, he couldn't envisage that scene without that track, so he eventually called me up and said, I've had to buy the Bowie track because I, I can't listen to anything else but that when I see the scene. All right, so on, on, the, uh, on the Bowie fan scale, uh, from, from casual fan to full-on groupie, where do, where do you fall? I'm pretty serious, yeah. When I was in my teens, it was, um, it was all David. I owned everything that he'd ever released, and... Uh, you know, I often say that he inspired me to become an actor more than any actor did, really, because, I, you know, for two or three years, I was crazy about him. Yeah. Are, you, are you more of a Ziggy Stardust sort of Bowie? Or are you more of a modern love Bowie? Which Bowie are you? Uh, earlier, yeah. I go, like, I'm Ziggy Stardust and Hungry Dory and Aladdin Sane and yeah. Young Americans and Dying all Dogs. Of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One last question. So in the movie, there's a lot of debate about words and pictures, their validity and their usefulness in society and so on. There's also a little bit of music. So at the end of the day, if you were to uh, seduce somebody, would you choose music, words, or pictures? Mm. Um, 
It would probably be words. I mean, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I, I think about it and I, I started in the theatre and language to me is hugely important and when you take on a film or a script, even if the story's great, if the dialogue isn't good, I tend not to want to do it because I learned when I was very young, if, if as an actor, if you say bad dialogue, you look like a bad actor. And uh, so I think words are, are hugely important. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for talking with us about words and pictures, and good luck with the film. Thank you. Is it time to move on to our next hero and villain? It is. Let's talk about A Million Ways to Die in the West. So this is the latest comedy from Seth MacFarlane, who gave us Ted um, and Mm. Family Guy on television, of course. Now, were you not a fan of Ted? <laughs> no, remember I hated Ted. Did you really? I don't Stupid remember that. Stupid teddy bear. <laughs> Just because you're foul-mouthed and can make fart jokes and you like to have sex with, like, I don't, no, no. Mm, okay, well, I can see where I mean, this there, is going. There was one joke that made me laugh, and that was um, Nora Jones, the adult contemporary oh, singer, yeah. who was really pissed off because Ted, you know. Had, he, right, had, had screwed her over. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Um, well, Okay, so the backstory, the, excuse me, the, the, the story of Million Ways to Die in the West is uh, Seth MacFarlane, who wrote, uh, directed, and produced this film. He stars as Albert. He's a, a cowardly sheep farmer out in 1882, Arizona, thoroughly ill-equipped to deal with duels and bar fights and all the other things that you have to do to be a stand-up guy in the West. Uh, his girlfriend, plays, played by uh, Amanda Seyfried, dumps him. She goes to uh, starts. Uh, uh, dating the local mustachio uh, <laughs> mustachio caretaker uh, named Foy, played by uh, Neil Patrick Harris. So uh, Albert is feeling low, but along comes Anna, this uh, smoking hot, gorgeous blonde woman with some kind of a checkered past, and she somehow takes Albert under her wing for some reason. They form a friendship and possibly a romance. What Anna doesn't tell Albert is that she is actually the wife of a uh, deadly gunslinger named Clinch Leatherwood, played by none other than Liam Neeson. Mm -hmm. So here's a clip. Oh, hi. Hey. Uh, Foy and Louise, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Uh, This is Anna. She's... I'm his girlfriend. She's my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. She's the new GF. Big time. A lot of sexual activity. All the time. Now, Kristen... Since you didn't like Ted, I can only imagine that you didn't like A Million Ways to Die in the West. That's really going to be the litmus test. If you liked Ted, you're going to like this. If you didn't, you won't. The title is incorrect. We only see about 25 ways to die. I started counting. It's not a million. It's a figure of speech. There's that ice block way. There's disease. You can, you know, dogs can eat you. Yes, right. You know, maybe like 25 ways to die. Uh, I went in knowing that uh, I probably wasn't going to like it. And that maybe made me like it a little bit more than I would have otherwise. Oh, really? Because I hated Ted so much. And uh-huh. and so I went in here, and I was trying to be open-minded, and I thought some of it was actually funny, but there are a lot of poop jokes. There are yes. a lot of fart jokes. There's a lot of diarrhea jokes. There's a lot of outhouse jokes. Mm-hmm. A lot of defecation jokes. Yeah, pee and poo and, and all that. Yeah, yeah. Well... Now, you know, there's a bit of a tradition to this. I mean, going back to Blazing Saddles, I, I kept thinking, you know... Oh, wait, I love that, Blazing well, Saddles. Now, but now, but the, see, there you go. Blazing Saddles took a lot of heat uh, back in the day for the campfire scene with Slim Pickens and all the guys sitting around the campfire eating beans and farting around the campfire. <laughs> 
that was considered to be a really rude and childish and puerile joke at the time. And, and I remember Mel Brooks, you know, got some criticism for that. Now we all consider Blazing Saddles to be a modern classic. So good. But at the time, it was kind of the Ted of its day. Um, you know, it was this, it was, Mel Brooks had a thing, you it know. It was smarter than Ted. Look, I. The way I, it talks about race and gender, the way, I mean. Yeah, all the fourth Blazing, wall breaking. Yeah, I mean, this, Blazing Saddles is brilliant. You're not going to get that from a Seth MacFarlane movie. You're not, you're just not going to get that level of, I don't know if discourse is the right word. <laughs> you're, you're not going to get that kind of humor. But uh, for what it was, and I am not really a big fan of of the scatological humor. You know, and I certainly could have done without the close-up of the actual scat itself. Oh I, could, I, could have, I could have done with a little less of that stuff. Um, but I still think this movie was actually really funny, and I thought a lot of the jokes really worked. Um, the, you know, the main... It's kind of interesting. There's almost a bit of fourth wall breaking in this movie. The main joke here is that Seth MacFarlane's character is kind of a modern guy. He, you know, he's the only guy who realizes just how awful and terrible and disease-ridden and miserable the West really is, where everybody else is just sort of satisfied with their lot and happy to be walking around having their children killed and their, their family members eaten by dogs and whatever. <laughs> and he's, he's the one who's horrified. He's the one who's talking about things like cholera and Parkinson's, which, of course, has not been you know <laughs> diagnosed yet. But he's the one who knows about this stuff and how the doctor is going to kill you with his ridiculous you know prescriptions. Yeah, but, but like the first 20 minutes of the movie is him going off on soliloquies about all the ways you can die and how awful it is. And so I have to say that from the get-go, just that setup of, oh my God, I'm going to be lectured by Seth MacFarlane again. That wears He's a little good. thin for you. Yeah, that I wears agree. thin. And I feel like it goes from him lecturing us to then a bunch of poop jokes. Okay. So it has like two extremes. And I'm not saying there aren't moments of tenderness and humor in between. There are here and there. Some of the you know, moments between him and Charlize Theron, I actually felt were genuinely touching between them. I have to say, I thought she was really, really good in this movie. Um, and it's not the kind of role I think a lot of people would be able to do much with. Yeah, and she makes her really human. She makes her character totally someone you could identify with. And somehow she seems to fit in perfectly in this movie where everyone else is being a caricature of a, yes. of a person and she's being a real person in the movie because she seems like she seems like a tomboy you get you get this this subtle sense that she has not been allowed to kind of grow as a norm. I mean, she, ha she has a backstory. And you get this idea that she hasn't been allowed to kind of grow and develop the way a woman would. And she's been forced to be kind of a rough, tough, tomboy type. But she's got a soft side somewhere underneath her. And... I think it's pretty. I think it's pretty effective that Charlize Theron can carry that off since she's so freaking gorgeous that mm. you kind of forget that she's that she is this like the most beautiful thing on the planet, and you kind of <laughs> buy that she's sort of a tomboy. You know what I mean? And I, I think that's that's pretty good acting on her part. I do think that some of Seth MacFarlane's humor is a little. Uh, chauvinistic, a little mm -hmm. obvious, a little sexist. There are things in it that. Uh, that border on racist, I think. Um, you know, there's, there's a there's one scene in the film where they go to a uh, the county fair and there's a shooting gallery oh, there, God. and the shooting gallery is called Runaway Slaves, and so it's all these little runaway slaves, you know, these pickaninny type caricatures of runaway slaves. But of course, uh, it's uh, it's it's Seth MacFarlane's character who says. Well, that seems unnecessary. You know, mm -hmm. couldn't you have had, you know, something? Couldn't you have had horses or squirrels or something? So the the joke about the unenlightened 
part of the West is there, which I think alleviates the racism of the joke. But there's one other joke in there, and you've seen it in the trailers about um, Charlize Theron's bustle. Yeah. Where he says, if I was a black guy... I didn't think that was well done. And I kept thinking, like, you know, I don't know if that's acceptable to have the if I was a black guy joke. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that... There are times when the movie oversteps its, you know, when Seth MacFarlane oversteps his bounds a little bit. And, and, I, and I do kind of feel like, could we think a little harder about that kind of stuff? The, you know, the Indians, when the Indians finally show up, I kept thinking, could we think a little harder about the Indian jokes? It's, it's not even so much that they're racist. I guess they kind of are racist. But it's also just like, it's pretty late in, the, in, the, in American history at this point. You know, we've, we've been through this. We've seen these jokes. They're pretty tired. They are offensive. And I'm a little sick of them. So sometimes the film got to me, but ultimately I thought there was enough smart humor in it and enough clever ideas, and I liked the romance that uh, that I, I laughed quite a bit, and I really enjoyed it. Wow. So I would say, despite the flaws, I would say, good date. Wow. I would not say good date. <laughs> I'd but say, not terrible? But it wasn't terrible. Okay. No. I mean, I have to agree with you on all counts. I really, yeah, if I was a black guy, eh. yeah. The shooting range, I do have to point out to listeners, um, stay after the closing credits if you want to see that joke come full circle. Yes. Um, and then... There's another, what you might call sort of, a, sort of an apology for that joke at the yeah. end, at, at the post, post-closing post credits. Yeah, so I, I would suggest that also. So that, that for some people, redeemed it, I think. I, I did hear Could some be. people say, you know, oh, that was... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I, I, yeah. I'm just going to say again, not a great date, but not as awful as I thought it was going to be. Okay. Not as awful as I thought it would be. It's kind of like that date where you got set up with somebody you didn't really want to go out with, but at the end, you didn't want to kill yourself for him. You're just like, <laughs> that was fine. The cocktails were kind of delicious, but the snacks were terrible. Not the highest praise I've heard from you, but Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, while we're on the subject, why don't we tackle a movie therapy question that came in? Uh, yeah. Kristen, yeah. let's hear that. Robert from Brooklyn says, I hear that the new X-Men film is very good, but I'm not interested in seeing yet another film where all the characters of color die just so that the white savior dude can be great. <laughs> help. Robert wants some help with this situation. All right. What, what, what are we going to tell Robert? Well, uh, Really, what we're going to tell Robert is, you're right, Robert. You're, you are so spot on, and you're it's correct. maddening. You don't you're... need you don't need you don't need us, the movie doctors, to tell you. No, <laughs> that, that, no, that you've hit upon an important issue. No, we've noticed this because we're humans with eyes. Right. It's hard not to see that. But we have we have figured out um, a couple of rules about how to stay alive in a movie if you are black. <laughs> and here, here's what they are. Rule number one. Um, be the star. Yeah. That's really, that's really, you gotta, you gotta take, take the reins in your own hands and be the star. Yeah. If you're the star of the movie, chances are pretty good. You're not going to die. Yeah. If be you're... Samuel L. Jackson. Right. Be, be Denzel Washington. Be Will Smith. Danny Glover. There are yeah, a few you can people be the, you, you can, can be, be. You can be the co-star. You could be Danny Glover. As long as you've got equal footing there, it's okay. You're going to live through the movie. Uh, the other great way to stay alive if you're black in a movie is to date the white guy. Yeah, be a female dating right. the white guy. Date the white guy. We're thinking specifically of um, Rosalind Cash, who played Lisa in Omega Man. Yeah, or Naomi Harris in 28 Days Later. Right. Um, there's an actress, uh, I really don't remember, couldn't remember her name, but Claire Hope Ashety. I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. She played um, the girl in Children of Men. Mm. And uh, so she, you know, she's... 
she's not really quite, I can't remember if she's really actually what that relationship is there with Clive Owen exactly, but it's clearly a date-ish kind of relationship. Yeah. She well, survives. Yeah, Zoe Saldana in every movie. There, <laughs> Zoe Saldana in every movie. There you go. Uh, the thing, so those are really your two main ways to stay alive. The one thing you don't want to be in a movie is just a black person. Yeah, you don't want to be like the coworker. No, don't guy. don't help the white guy. No, don't be the other guy in the platoon. No, no, don't do, do not that. Be then the other guy in the platoon. You're definitely do not do that. definitely going to die. Yeah, uh, you know if you're it, Connor Cruz in Red Dawn. Yeah. Oh, guys, right? come on without me. No, I'm just going to hold you back. <laughs> exactly. No, no, really. Go well, ahead. I'll be a decoy. Bubba in Forrest Gump. Oh, don't save me, Forrest. Don't <laughs> save me. No, go on. Save yourself. Start the... Here's my shrimp recipe. <laughs> right. So you, that, you don't want to just be the black guy who, who does a nice thing for the white guy because that's never going to work out for you. No, no. Just be Zoe Saldana or right. be... Or Denzel. Denzel, yeah. Denzel, be but the... you know what? Denzel does die a lot, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. He, do, he, does, he does his share of dying. Or he just better fly. to be Will Smith. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, he has good. he has died far less often, I think. <laughs> anyway, there you go. There's there's our prescription, oh, Robert. I'm I'm sorry that our prescription wasn't giving you much hope to change your opinion of the movies because frankly, your opinion's right. But yeah. um, the rest of you out there, if you ever need movie therapy, always call us five seven one seven movies. You can also use that number to answer trivia questions and every week we ask a movie trivia question you answer it what did we ask last week last week we were talking about the x-men film days of future past and time travel and deja vu and such and so we came up with a movie we played this clip i I, I can't believe that everything we say or do has already happened we can't change what's going to happen and and, and five billion people are going to die i want the future to be unknown I want this to be the present. I want to stay here this time with you. We asked you to name that movie, and here's the right answer. Hey, Ray, Fern, Kristen, it's Dan from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the answer to this week's trivia question is the underrated 12 Monkeys with Bruce Willis, Brad Pitt. Thanks so much, guys. Love the show. Dan from Dan. Ann Arbor again. Dan, haven't didn't we just hear from you a couple months ago? Yeah. Awesome, Dan. You're like a hero on this game. But I want more people to call. That's what I want. <laughs> I want wow. more people to call. I'm glad, I'm Dan, I'm glad it's you, but I want more people to call 5717 movies. Yeah, but you know, you can also log on to Facebook, facebook.com slash movie date podcast. Rafer's about to punch me as I That's say that. That's not true. He That's does not, not like it when you do the Facebook. He wants you to call <laughs> in. He wants you to call in. All right. So for this week's trivia question, Rafer, in honor of heroes and villains, which we've been talking about today, Let's play a clip of a movie where it's been debated whether or not he is a hero or a villain or both. I must go away, John. No! No, wait. Wait, you don't have to do this. Sorry. No, don't do it. Don't go. It has to end here. I order you not to go. I order you not to go. I order you not to go. I know now why you cry. But it's something I can never do. If you know the name, 
of that iconic character who has been both hero and villain, give us a call, 5717movies. And you can always visit us at facebook.com slash moviedatepodcast. And we'd like to give a huge thanks this week to Jay Cowett and Cameron Moniz Edwards for their terrific version of Heroes. They wrote the lyrics, they sang the song, and they played the instruments as well. Thanks so much, guys. Die, you die on the screen. I'll be a Disney queen And nothing Will stop the screams And nothing Will drive them off screen We can be villains Just for one day We can be villains 